Acts 2, verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's pray for our time together this morning. Father, thank you that uh, as we opened um, in praying and even just with uh, Lorenzo just a moment ago, um, God being in a dry, uh, relatively warm space just to, uh, to sit together as a spiritual family, um, to submit ourselves, to listen to not just the scriptures, but what we believe you're leading our community into. And we pray that you just continue to do that work today. Um, I've got the prayer on my heart. Um, all morning long um, has just been, Jesus, would you speak? Jesus, would you speak? Um, my desire is for you to speak through the scriptures today um, to each of us in our hearts and what we need to hear. And so we just open up this space asking for you, Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Savior and friend, uh, to speak to our hearts today. And we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. So Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, for those of you who were with us last week, we began a new series where over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at specifically what we just read through, this kind of description of the early church. What was the early church all about? What kind of posture and practices did they commit themselves to? That's specifically what we've been kind of naming coming into the season that we're in as a church is these post this posture and these practices as what allowed this community to steward the revival, to steward a fresh work of the Holy Spirit in the community in such a way that it is not just a flash in the pan, pan oh, that was cool, remember when all that happened, but like an ongoing, sustaining, and spreading revival. How, how do you get Revival to become something more than just a cool weekend in Jerusalem, but to this 2,000-year-going movement, and it, it's these sorts of practices. Very, very specifically, these, this is what we're talking about when we talk about church. I said last week, I'm not sure how many of you that are here, what your experience of what a church is or what a church looks like, but Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what we just read is the definition of what we're talking about when we're talking about church. It is the rubric by which we judge whether or not a church is in line with what it means to be a church based off the scriptures. And so we're moving through each of these different little practices, these elements, these things that those first Christians gave themselves to. And so uh, last week, we just talked about the posture of devoting themselves. This week up on the docket is that first one listed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's our series graphic. Uh, so that's what we're doing as well. So this is the series that we're in, moving through, looking at all these practices. Up on the docket this week is the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. What does it mean for us to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? 
Now, as a bit of background, just for the sake that many of us may not even know what the apostles are, other than maybe a couple of people that we would stick a name to, just a little bit of background here. The word apostle simply means sent out ones. It actually has its root in naval talk, not in like religious speak. Um, the boat carrying all this precious cargo, being moving from one place to another, there was, it was an, an apostolos. It was, it was a ship sent out from one place to another carrying precious cargo. And this is the title that Jesus gives to his core group of apprentices and disciples who followed him over his three-year ministry, watching him teach, watching his miracles, witnessing his character and his person, learning how to be like him. And even more than all of that, they were witnesses to his resurrection on the other side of his death. And on the other side of the resurrection, Jesus rounds them up, de- deputizes them as his sent out ones, giving them this, this great commission, as, as we call it, to go into the world, all ethnic groups, all backgrounds, to make disciples of their now resurrected King Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them how to obey all that I've commanded you. So this is what the apostles are, this little group sent to do that. And so the teaching that they're committing themselves to in the early church is that teaching, is that work of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? And how do we obey all that he's commanded us to do? This is when we talk about the apostles' teaching. This is what we're talking about. And we really don't have to scratch our heads about what the apostles' teaching looked like. It's called the New Testament. It's the the second half of your Bible. In in the Gospels, in the four stories of the life of Jesus, Jesus never wrote a page of, of the Bible, It's all about him, and it's all about his quotations in the Gospels and his life, but he never wrote it. These four Gospels are the accounts, the teaching of the apostles about Jesus and all that he commanded. The book of Acts, what we just read from, is all about the life of the apostles moving and planting the church and it moving forward. And all of the letters of the New Testament are written by, with this apostolic authority, these apostles writing to other churches, teaching them how to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And so there's, uh, there's belief stuff in all of this, of what we're supposed to believe about Jesus, believe about ourselves, believe about the world, what's called theology or doctrine or orthodoxy. And on the other side, we also, when you read through the New Testament, you find that it's not just a systematic theology of detailing all the intricacies of the hypostatic union of Christ's humanity and his divinity, but also very real like ethics, how you live your life, behavior, orthopraxy type stuff. And so the apostles' teaching is this way of saying all that the apostles have handed down from their time with Jesus and their experience of Jesus to the next generation to follow him, to know him, to rightly believe and rightly behave or rightly act. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica says, So then, brothers and sisters, devote yourselves, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught whether by what we said or what we wrote. Notice, by what we said when Paul and the apostles are traveling and by what we wrote, what you call and I call our New Testament. Stand firm, devote yourselves. This is what one of the primary tasks of the early church was, to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to devote yourself to orthodoxy or the word here that makes some of y'all skin crawl is tradition. Like, we're so anti, don't, don't look at me blank stared. I know how you feel. Anything with like a tinge, it's every Disney movie, 
right, is the tradition of the tribe or the family. It's like, no, I'm going to be free. We hate tradition. Unless it's about Christmas family traditions or it's about, like, your grandma's, like, chocolate chip cookie recipe. We're so pro-tradition on those sorts of things. But not the sort of traditions that would impose themselves on the ways that we think and the ways that we behave, the ways that we live and act. And yet, what we find within this is tradition in the best sense of the word. Tradition being time-honed beliefs or behaviors or practices or postures that have been time-owned by a trusted individual and then given to you for a particular end goal. It's a, it's, a, it's a process given by a trustworthy individual to another to get them going in the right direction, which is why whatever it is, pancakes that you've got or chocolate chip cookies, whatever tradition that your family has, there is a right way and a wrong way to do Christmas in some of your families. Why? Because that's how you, you, you grew up in. And so I just, you know, I, there's like an unapologetic nature to this. Christianity is, is, is an ongoing handing down of a, of a tradition, each generation being stu- responsible for stewarding the teachings of, of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the theology, all those words, stewarding it in their lifetime and then handing it down to the next generation. This kind of snowball effect of like grandma's chocolate chip cookies getting in, like growing and growing as time goes on, more and more use and, and value to it as it goes on. Which is, for some of us, again, you like itch at tradition, but like, what's great about this is you don't have to go bumping around in your life with God or your life at all trying to figure out what's the right way to, to believe and the right way to behave. Tradition just means I can actually receive this as a gift, not these as, as constraints that bind me, but as freedom that I can walk in, not having to worry about where I'm going or what I'm doing or what I'm missing the mark on. And so there's everything on the apostles' teaching. But the, but the question is, why is it so focused on this being something that the early church had to devote themselves to, to stand firm and hold on to? Like, wouldn't it be enough for, like, the pastors devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? Or everybody kind of, like, lukewarmly acknowledged the, you know, apostles' teaching. Or, like, they had, but devote, continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. They were obstinate about the apostles' teachings. They were stubborn about the apostles' teachings, why, why does a church need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching so that they can become a community that stewards revival in a sustaining and spreading way? For the early church, the great necessity of devotion was because as you read through the book of Acts and into you know, the background going on within the letters that these apostles are writing, the ongoing pressure against the church was the pressure of, of false teaching. Particular frames of, of belief and behavior which went against everything that Jesus had handed down to us. There was, there, there, you know, there were waves of, of like outright persecution, Christians being crucified upside down and set on fire. Brutal, brutal, but that came in waves. It wasn't all the time. Even right here, we just read they had favor with everybody. But the ongoing pressure time and again for the early church was a pressure to either add or subtract from what Jesus had handed down. And so there was Jesus, and then, you know, plus circumcision and kosher laws, right? And that was a group called the Judaizers. It was Jesus plus Gnostic mystery cult stuff. It was Jesus plus the Roman Empire. It was Jesus minus his sexual ethics. It was Jesus minus his call to radical generosity. It was Jesus plus or minus what they were constantly dealing with. And so just about every single letter in the New Testament, if you were just to read through the New Testament, is all the apostles going, hey, 
Remember this theology. Remember this way of life that I showed you. Don't listen to these nut jobs who are trying to pull you away from what has been handed down to you. But remain consistent within this. Don't, don't be pulled to the left or the right, but be faithful to the message, the ministry, the work that you've been called to. How are we doing so far? Okay, cool. So far, so good. So the question then is, if that was a necessity for the early church, in what way is that a necessity for us today? Our, our devotion to the apostles' teaching, our devotion to orthodoxy. Why is this such a great necessity? And, and simply, those waves have just continued. They might have changed their names and changed their faces. It may not be, like, there's, there's likely no Judaizers in the room right now who would argue that in order for us to be faithful followers of Messiah Jesus, that all the men in the room need to get circumcised if they're not already, and we all need to take on a kosher food diet. I just, I don't think anyone's in here today. If you are, welcome. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> You're kind of preoccupied with some interesting things, but we get it. Um, I just, that, that's not here. The Gnostic cults have a new wave. The, the, the legalism that did come from the Judaizers is still present within the church. It just has a different face now. So the, the, the propensity to add or subtract from what's been handed down to us through Jesus and through the early, over the past 2,000 years, that propensity still continues. And so for those of you that have been with Collective, you, I, I talk about this very regularly. You've heard me talk about Stretch Armstrong Jesus. You've heard me talk about Build a Jesus Workshop, you know, like Build a Bear Workshop. You get to go through and pick the Jesus that you want for yourself. Like these all continue. And so within the church, there, we, I, I can just absolutely see that this is there. But instead of hearing me talk about it, I'll just bring someone else in to talk about it today. Ben Sixsmith, Polish writer, not a believer. This quote, y'all. Um, I could read this and we could be done. But um, he says, there is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modest political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. What he's setting up here is what Ryan refers to as build a Jesus workshop. He calls with a twist of Christianity, a sort of way of engaging with all of the stuff of the world we're looking no different necessarily, but just this little twist of Christianity put on the end. So there's entertainment, there's culture, celebrities, fashion, everything that the world's engaged in, but you kind of come in with just a twist of Christianity. He continues that most people just stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex, which is a joke. It's a very, very funny joke. <laughs> Why are you following Jesus if everything in your, if you're going for all of the stuff of culture, but you feel like you need to add a twist of Jesus at the very single end, why add that? At least you get a premarital set, right? That's, it's a very funny joke. Okay, we're gonna keep going. <laughs> he continues, we can see the with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. He calls out Jerry Falwell, who is a representative of the right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic nationalism with a twist of Christianity. But he continues that there's also progressive Christians, of whom Nadia Boltz Weber is an example, who promotes the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. You can pause here. Nadia Boltz Weber, for those of you who um, don't know, is a priest out of Colorado. And so, like, what left-wing causes? So she is, like, would come in the form of basically being a pastor, but she argues for ethical porn. She's pro-choice. Uh, pro, like, fill in everything within just what, what progressive culture would, like, affirm. She affirms all of that. Um, and basically would say, and this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is, is affirming and agreeing with all that. So much so that she's pro-divorce if your spouse isn't sexually fulfilling your needs anymore, which she did to her husband of 20 years. Pro-aggressive with a twist of Christianity. 
Sixsmith continues. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. Jerry Falwell, Nadia Boltz-Weber could not be two opposite sides of the spectrum, but they share the same pattern of thought. The former, Falwell and the conservative stuff, believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should uh, and should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Like I said, okay, and... Um, what, this is with a twist of Christianity. You call it ideology. You call it adultery. You call it adultery, idolatry. You call it syncretism. You call it heresy. You call it false teaching. You call it what, whatever language you want to use is this propensity for, like, I don't know how else to call it, but reverse contextualization, which I know just like, it's like, there's a hurricane outside, Ryan. Just track with me for a second. So contextualization is a word that's used for missionaries, whether embedded missionaries in a local church or going over to some other, other culture. And contextualization is basically the emphasis that as you bring the gospel and the message of the New Testament, like all this stuff to that culture, what you have to do is somehow hold on to the deep essential elements of the gospel truth, but communicate it in such a way that that context and those people can engage with it. Okay? So... In the midst of apostles' teaching, I'm not saying that my sermons should sound like Paul in L.A. or anyone's sermons in Alabama should sound like sermons that happen here. But there should be an essential, uh, um, an essential tradition that's, uh, that's holding them all together, right? And so that's good contextualization. What's happening with this is reverse contextualization. What I mean by this is that culture... And whether you lean left, right, or whatever, that becomes the thing that is the unchanging tradition, and Jesus becomes the thing that's contextualized to fit within that. So if I come with a, a, a right wing, you know, Jerry Falwell, fill in the gap with all the stuff and all those that, that most of you in the room right now, knowing that where we are in our city, would be like, yeah, him, I watched the Hulu documentary, I can't believe it, right? And you would go, yeah, that guy's the worst. And you would say, yes, I can't believe that he would take Jesus and put it on that. 100%. Just as much as the sort of progressive assumption that everything that our culture agrees is the right way must then be the right way. And so I will strip Jesus of anything that does not fit within that framework to fit him into this. It's a reverse contextualization where the thing that's changing is not the way that I engage with the culture, but the way that I engage with, the, with Scripture, the way that I engage with Jesus. So it's a reverse contextualization. And the whole danger of what we find in the early church over the past 2,000 years, and even into today, is this temptation continues with a twist of Christianity. Build a Jesus workshop, whether it's the Crusades, whether it's chattel slavery in the American South, whether it's... it's the nationalist stuff, like stuff that we see right now, and whether it's like the the like rainbow flag wearing like Lutheran priest, 
Like, hear me here. Just like what Sixman said, I'm not saying they have the same output in the world, the same damaging effects. But what I am saying is they all are built off a similar pattern of assuming chattel slavery and making Jesus fit into that. Assuming the crusades and making Jesus fit into that. Assuming my, my nationalism and my conservative, whatever politics that I hold, and making Jesus a fit into that. And likewise, assuming my culture's affirmation of just about everything I want to do with my body, that I have full autonomy and God has no rights over my body, and I will fit Jesus into that. And so we've got, we have got to identify that's the trajectory and regularly, regularly, all the time. The pattern is that as churches do the, with a twist of Christianity, the first thing that you lose when you begin to cut Jesus down to fit the culture, the first thing that you cut away is the spirit. The moment you take a scalpel to Jesus, is the first thing that gets cut away is the spirit's ongoing presence and work within a community. And so if you want to be a church that stewards revival, a church that sees the, the work of God go out in, in signs and wonders and people being baptized and coming into the church, the temptation is to think, I've got to, make, I've got to cut Jesus down so that people can actually swallow him. And the, the, the opposite is the case. The more that you hold up Jesus, and yes, contextualize him, but bring him into the culture, the more the spirit actually will show up and do stuff which is why all the churches that either go to the far-right nationalist stuff or on the other side, the progressive, dwindle and die within the decades. For all of our head-scratching of how do we get people into the church, you don't, you don't do that by scalpeling Jesus away. You do that by upholding him for who he is and allow people to come see him. So, oh, we're doing good on time. I, I went longer than I thought I did there, but I didn't. Um, okay, so... This is the major, this is the, all of these, fellowship, breaking of bread, these are all so necessary. But I think Luke names apostles' teachings first on purpose. Because if you have all the rest of them, but you don't have apostles' teaching, you've got breaking of bread, you've got hospitality, you've got care for the poor and the needy in your community, but you don't have apostles' teaching, then the rest of them lose any ability for the Spirit to empower and, and work within them. So apostles' teaching comes first. So the question is, how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, I'll just read from this, chapter 10. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Now, as a bit of background before we get into that, Corinth is a church teetering on the edge of falling over the, you know, the, the, the precipice of with a twist of Christianity. They've got Gnostic, you know, mystery cult stuff. They've got sexual ethics have completely fallen away within the church. There's a celebrity worship of certain leaders in the church. I'm with this guy. I'm with this guy. And they're dividing and going against each other. There's ethnic groups claiming superiority, Jews over Gentiles, Gentiles over Jews. And so the church is fragmenting and falling apart, largely because they haven't held to the teaching that Paul gave them when he planted the church in Corinth. Not just Paul, but his team of other planters. So he's now heard word that the church in Corinth is falling apart. And so he writes a couple of letters to them. And this is the second of the ones that we have. He says, now I, Paul, myself, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent, I beg, I beg you that when I am present, when I finally come to Corinth and I'm with you guys, I don't need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we're living according to the flesh, living according to the world. So just first notice, whatever devotion is, devotion to orthodoxy, commitment to the, like, it is first and foremost, humility, gentle, and meek. 
There's no like Theobro kind of stuff here on Twitter arguing with people within the church or within the, he's not, he's not here to get in a fight. He goes, I'm, I'm coming with humility in the way that I talk about this, meekness, gentle, gentle. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here, I'm not rearing for a fight. But that does not mean, like some of us think, that in order to be gentle means that you're a pushover. What does he say? I'm, I'm humble among you in person, but you guys also know that I'm, I'm very capable of being bold. So much so, he says in verse two, that uh, here's my thing. I really don't like being bold, but I will be if I need to. So much so, not just bold, but with confidence. And then he goes, I'm planning on challenging certain people in the community that think the way of Jesus equals the way of the flood, the way of whatever the world, the way the world works. So he's got this humility and this boldness when it comes to, when it comes to orthodoxy. I'm not, I'm not rearing for a fight. I'm not heresy hunting in the church. I'm not looking, what did you just say? Oh, no, 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 you, you overstepped about. He's looking for people who specifically are, are in an ongoing walk away from this. And so he does that with humility and gentleness, but he will be bold and challenged if need be. So the first thing, how do we do devote ourselves to this? Is first, we do this with humility and gentleness. The conversations that we have and the way that we go about it is one of humility, meekness. Like Jesus, like Paul. But it also is, we will have conversations when we need to. He says in verse 6, this person who keeps on going, pretending that following Jesus means they can do whatever they want. Verse 6, he goes, I'm planning on coming and bringing a particular form of discipline for them. And this isn't like a stick or anything. It's, it's church discipline. They're going to be excommunicated from the community. You are not following Jesus. You're not committing yourself to what we as a community have agreed Jesus has called us to. And so why are you wasting your time on Sundays with us? So there's a humility, but there's also a boldness. So Paul then moves in verse three to say, for although we live in the flesh, although we live in the world, we don't wage war according to the flesh, according to the way that the world does. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the world, of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. So let's just pause because Paul in he introduces a metaphor right here that he carries through the next of these, these verses. See, what would be interesting is he goes, you know, for although we live in the flesh, we, uh, we walk by the Spirit, is kind of what he says, you know? Although we live in the flesh, we live by the Spirit. But he specifically says, we do not wage war. He introduces like warfare metaphor. Do you see that? So Paul just assumes Commitment to orthodoxy, commitment to the, what's been handed down, commitment to the New Testament is not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be entail conflict. And, oh, Ryan. Sorry, I'm calculating something for time. Okay, do you want a little bit tidbits of what, what, what Paul's doing here? Yeah. Bible nerd moment? Okay. Um, we're gonna go back to numbers for a second. Um, I debated doing this because this is, this is key to understanding Paul's metaphor for war and it's also key to understanding the life of Paul in general, Okay. So quick brief, and then it'll come back together. For me, it, it, it made a lot. So we'll see how quickly Ryan can do this. Numbers 25, it's your favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> Numbers 25, there's this quick, small little story where as the people of Israel are coming out of slavery in Egypt on the way to the promised land, they pass through the region of the Midianites and the Moabites. They worship all, there's practices of injustice, slavery, temple prostitution. There's just, just you know, fill in the blank of like, ugh. But they've got to go through that culture in order to get to the place that God's calling them. And as they make their way through, Israel gets distracted. 
this happens all the time, and they begin to swing off their men in particular to marry these Moabite and Midianite women, bringing in their idols and their worship into it. So there's like a idolatry angle, there's a sexual angle because you would have to marry in that culture, and so they're just like adding up wives, adding to their, their Israelite faithful wives, all these other wives. And so everything starts falling apart. God burns with anger and wrath over, he's like, I just, I keep, you guys keep doing this. And so his, his judgment comes in the form of a plague that begins to move through God's people's camp. And, and the worst moment is when Moses, the priest Aaron, his son Eleazar, and his son Aaron, the priest's grandson Phineas, are standing at the front of the, the tabernacle and they're watching people getting sick, but people are still intermarrying. It's just this like scene of chaos. And one man brazenly walks by with the Midianite princess towards like in front of the tent of meeting in front of the tabernacle and takes her over to his tent nearby. And Phineas is filled with this like zeal for holiness and the people of God. This is not what we were called to. He grabs a spear and he goes into the tent where the two of them are and he, and he thrusts it through the both of them. And the plague is stopped and it has this crazy line where it said that, that this was counted to Phineas's righteousness. So why did I just tell this story? First, when, we, when we're introduced to Paul in the beginning of his story, before he meets the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's persecuting Christians. He's taking them away and having them killed. Why is Paul doing that? He understands himself as his generation's Phineas. That there's an idolatry that has come into the church and to the people of God, and, there's a, and it will rip the people of God apart. And so he sees himself as stepping into the role of Phineas, to go and to stop the idolatry and to you know, win his righteousness until he meets this guy named Jesus. The resurrected Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, he calls him into a new mission that based around the death of Jesus on the cross, the whole goal now is no longer one of, of, of the spear, but the way of the cross. And the way that we now win people, like this is Paul's whole framework for his ministry, is him taking the story of Phineas and it being retooled around the person and the work of Jesus. But he doesn't let go of his, his animosity for idolatry and the people of God. But he doesn't pick up the spear anymore. Now he's giving his life over to a new way of doing that. And my argument is, because he's been referring to Phineas in the story in 1 Corinthians, is that when he starts talking about war here, is Paul's picking up on the, the imagery of Phineas. That he's picking up on this imagery of, as God's people, and now in this age, of Jew and Gentile together, being led into the promised land of the kingdom making our way through the Moabite and the Midianite of people worshiping other gods and engaged in all these other things. We are called to make our way through while being faithful to God. And every so often, people are going, the people of God are gonna get distracted. And so he says, our responsibility is like Phineas to go and to, to fight for faithfulness, to reclaim true worship, true devotion to what we've been called to. Is this making any sense? Okay, it, it's really helpful for me in understanding Paul and then why the war metaphor. Because his whole point here is we don't pick up spears anymore. And we're not throwing spears through the idolaters themselves. What does he say our primary war is? Uh, you can go back to um, 2 Corinthians 10, please. Yes. He goes, the whole point is, though we live in the world, we're not waging war according to the We're not picking up spears and swords. He goes, the weapons that we have are not of the flesh. They're not human weapons, but they are powerful through God 
We're going to come back to the, the powerful weapon of God in a moment. For what, what is the thing that we're demolishing? It's not the idolaters themselves. It's not the false teachers themselves. It's the word they use is strongholds. It's like, it's, it's language of a prison. These things that have encaptured us that he then defines specifically as being arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. What, what is our fight? What is our war with? It is not with the world. I'm a big believer in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, where Paul says, my responsibility is not judgment of the world, but judgment within the church. God, God will deal with, with the world. My responsibility as a leader in the church is whether or not we are being faithful to what God's called us to. So my, my fight is not with the world. My fight, even Paul says here, is not with the false teachers themselves, but to the strongholds. These, the, the language of proud thing is it's this, the lofty things, the things that are set up in over all things. It's the ideologies that shape and control a culture. Paul says, my primary enemy working within the church are those sorts of ideologies coming within the church and misshaping the people just like the Midianite and the Moabite women. And so I'm, I'm going after those things. And so why do I do that with gentleness? Because the whole point is not to kill anybody or to destroy anybody. It's to win them out of that stronghold prison. It's to win them out of that argument. It's to win them out of these things. And so Paul is giving this framework here for what devotion looks like. It's war, but not war with people. That's why it's gentle and meek. It's war with, with particular ways of thinking, particular ways of, of believing and behaving that come within the church, brought in from the world, that, that we have to be regularly just defensive of going, where, where, does that, where did that thought come from? Where's that thought going? Does that thought have its origin in the work of Jesus and who he's called you to be? Or is that from something else? And we, we just, we look over all those things because the whole point, as he says, is the whole point of us demolishing arguments and, you know, deconstructing is, is literally the word in Greek. Deconstructing these strongholds is specifically to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The fight of devotion in the church is not a fight for theological purity for the sake of patting ourselves on the back. It's a community that's obeying Jesus. Going back to the Great Commission of what, what Jesus handed down to the apostles, go into the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Our end goal is for obedience, and so our war is for obedience in the church, which means that we're never at war with one another. Our, our primary task is against the thinking and the beliefs that come in and begin to take us away from obedience to the way that Jesus has called us to. And so I, I was, one of the main things that in praying this week about this passage and, and the weekly Bible pass, like what, what passages we're going to use, because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of places that talk about devotion. Um, and I, the, the main kind of theme that I kept feeling in prayer was um, that our community needs to come to terms with the fact that devotion to God is, is conflict. It's conflict. It, 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 there's, there's no cruise control to this. There's no easy devotion. Like being faithful to Jesus in, in, a, in a world and a culture that is constantly going to be pulling us away from him is going to entail some form of difficulty, of challenge. It's going to require resolve. And again, that doesn't mean we start swinging swords at our neighbors, but what it means is that we're, we're constantly looking out for one another and for our faithfulness to Jesus because we're all about being obedient to Jesus. And that's a hill I am happy to die on. 
like, man, I just feel like Collective Church is so committed to being obedient to Jesus. It's like, yeah, thank you. They're so committed to being faithful to what Jesus has handed. Yeah, I'm so, yeah sorry. And like, I'm not trying to, like, to be like shock jock weirdo guy right now because there's totally like, I was thinking, I was talking to my buddies about this. There's totally a form of um, like Joe Rogan with a twist of Christianity. And so we rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying like, I'm just, this is, what, this is what we've been called to. This is what it means to be the people of Jesus. And if we want to see an ongoing work of God stewarded and spread within our community, it will require us to be faithful to what's been handed down. And so this doesn't mean that we're brash and mean about it, but it does mean that with a deep meekness and humility, we are unapologetic. So I, I talked about the weapon. How do, we, how do we deconstruct strongholds? How do we demolish arguments? Second Corinthians, just a little bit earlier, Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. We devote ourselves. Instead, we have renounced secret, shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, more on this in a moment, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. An open display of what he parallels it with is the word of God. So just a couple of of notes. Well, let's just go right into it. The, The weapon made powerful by God for deconstructing strongholds and demolishing these arguments is an open display of the truth, an open display of the word of God. It really is that simple. Like some of you maybe think that like it's, you know, we're gonna sign up for like a seminary apologetics course or whatever, and you guys are all gonna have to learn Greek in order to be devoted. No, it's just, it's a community that does this on a regular basis. And the moment that this becomes not opened on open display within the community is, is those are the first steps to, lo- to losing it all. The Spirit will not bless a community that doesn't receive the very scriptures that the Spirit inspired. And so an open display to the truth, an open revelation is the practice of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. If we want to engage with this and devote ourselves to all that God has called us to, it will require this, this open display of the truth. Now, two things on the open display of truth. The first is, as I regularly do, did, I, did everyone notice the, the, the pronouns in the passage? Therefore, since I have received this ministry, because I was shown mercy, I don't give up. Instead, I've renounced these things. I commend myself before God to everyone else in open display. Of the, no. As regularly, as goes the name of collective church, devotion to the apostles' teaching is, is, a, is a communal work that we do with we, ourselves, together. And so what we call commending ourselves to God before others, what we call devotion to the apostles' teaching at Collective Church, we just have a much simpler title for that, and that is Integrated Bible Study. Very simple practice that op- puts Scripture, that puts the Word of God, that puts the truth on open display within our community. And so for those of you that aren't initiated, or as a reminder for those of you that are Every single week on our website and on social media, it's the one, it's like the one thing we use. It's like social media is like, give money to this church in Maui that we want to support, and then here's your weekly Bible passage every single week. That's basically all we use social media for, and you should too. Um, <laughs> every single week, we send out the weekly Bible passage, which is normally, it's, it's a 
easy you know, segment that you can really sink your teeth into. It's long enough to do deep, that it, you've got something of substance there, but it's short enough that you can really work through that, where we invite everyone in the community to spend time for themselves at some point during the week with those passages for themselves, to put that text, to put that truth on open display for themselves. Reading that either in one deep sitting or little times over the course of the week, open display of the truth through personal study. Then we gather in here on Sundays for those same weekly Bible passages to be taught within the context of our community. We put that same word of truth, that same word of God on open display for us as a community and also for anyone else who wants to check things out. And so through the preaching of the word, we're putting the truth on open display. We're, we're, we're wielding the, the, the weapon that is the means by which we deconstruct the strongholds and ideologies of this world. And so that's like the quick like preacher nugget moment that is like, I've had people in the past that when we just preach the Bible and don't talk about other things that are going out in the world, like going back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, my, my responsibility is, is, is not just like the proclamation of the truth, but specifically in so doing to like demolish strongholds and tear down ideologies. And so like that, that's what this time is for. That's what, what we're meant to be doing is open display of the truth for us as a community, teaching and going deeper into it. And then in the third stage is within our discipleship groups where we're talking about an open display of the truth, not just being read to us, but now through us out into our lives. We're talking application of the passage. And so, like, is there, go to seminary? 100%. Is there books to read on certain things? Absolutely. Do we do classes? Very regularly. All of, yes and amen. The bedrock of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is a weekly open display of the truth within our community. It was individuals, as a community, and then in these small groups of application. And so, there's a QR code on the back of the chair if this sounds interesting to you and you'd like to hear more. But, like, this is just, this is... Part of what the whole point of this series is simply to go, oh, you know the stuff that we've been doing for forever? This is this, the reason why Lo, Isaac, and I, and our leaders, we're so gung-ho about this, is because this is how, how did we get the revival that we got at the beginning of this year? Devoting ourselves to all of these things that we've been devoting ourselves to for years, and the Spirit came in a unique moment and lit all that stuff on fire. And so if we want to continue that, it's through us continuing to devote ourselves to that. So there's the practice for this week. My wife says I don't do practical very well, so I'm making sure I got practical. Is that good? Cool, okay. Um, it's just, it's simply devoting ourselves to the scriptures and allowing them to shape the way that we think and engage. Where we regularly are allowing scripture to be the thing that we bring into our world rather than the world be the thing that we bring to Jesus. Does that make sense? So two things, and then I'm gonna talk about why we do this, why devotion is so important. One thing I just wanna point out that it's a nerd nugget, um, but it's so good. So notice that what, what does Paul lay out here is the kind of three options when it comes to the way that we relate to the word of God. First, there's the open display of the truth, what we might call devoting ourselves to the word of God. And then he gives two other options. Paul's like, you got three options when it comes to the way you relate to the word of God. There's devotion, there's deception, and there's distortion. Do you see that? He goes, the whole point is we've renounced. We no longer are engaged in secret and shameful things, wearing a mask and putting on a show. We're not acting deceitfully, he says, or distorting the word of God. A quick moment on each of these words. Deceitfully, Paul is, it's, it's, it's so good. 
The word deceitfully that he uses here in Greek is his little hyperlink back. It's the same word that gets used back in Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar with the story, with the serpent being the most cunning animal, the most deceitful, it's the word, who comes to humanity and says, did God really say? The whole enticement to sin that led to everything that's going on around here was, was all began with a question of the word of God being said over here and then someone coming and go, did God really say? And began to provoke and argue and build up the strongholds that led them further into sin. And so Paul's whole point is you're either devoted or you're deceived or deceiving with the word of God. But then he also uses the word distort, which is, um, it's, it's, like, um, it's, like, it's like cocktail talk. It's bar talk. It's, it's um, to, wa- to, to water something down, to cut something. So he goes, we're not watering down the scriptures. We're not watering down the word of God. The, the reference that he uses earlier in 1 Corinthians when he uses this word another time is he's specifically talking about these particular preachers who are coming into the, into the church who maybe aren't necessarily giving false teaching, but they're watering down. They're subtracting from the full weight of what Jesus calls us to specifically for influence, money, and popularity. They want to fit with it. They go, you can, you can have Jesus and you can totally fit within the Roman society that you work within. And so anybody, people will shell out money for someone to alleviate their, their guilt and sin rather than coming to Jesus and allowing him to do that through the work of the cross and a new life in the spirit. And so he goes, man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not some kind of like celebrity influencer rolling through like the church of Corinth, doling out my TikToks to alleviate you of any kind of obedience to Jesus. We're mixing metaphors here now, aren't we? He goes, that's not what we're here to do. But I, the, the framework is, there's three options before us that we have to consider. Am I walking in devotion to the word of God? Am I walking in devotion to the truth? Am I walking in devotion to the apostles' teaching? Or am I walking within a distortion, a watered-down version of that? Am I actively distorting it for others? Or am, have I been deceived Like the serpent, have I heard the invitation of, did God really say? And I've fallen away into that, or I'm actively deceiving myself. Paul hands out these these three options that we have to consider. Because the method of devotion is what he calls commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience. Those who devote themselves to the truth, to the word of God, they commend, they present themselves as belonging to God for all the world to see. That anybody looks at that person, they don't have to go, they say they're a Christian, they say they're on like team God or whatever, but no, open display. Anybody look, they go, oh man, yeah, that, that guy, team Jesus, I may disagree one heartedly, but that guy is 100% team Jesus. That gal is committed to the way of Jesus. It's open display for everyone. This is what devotion looks like. It's how we show ourselves to be a community that's faithful to Jesus. So then the big question is Why? Why do we do all this? Because this is, it'd be really, I, you, it, I, you guys are going out into your week. Every single week I get to do this. There's a lot of weeks where it'd be really easy to kind of like deceive or distort some of this stuff. Be, my sermons would be a lot more fun. Wouldn't that be great if I got up here and I was like, oh, the apostles teaching, it's love. So just do that. And it's like, oh, great. We can all pat ourselves. I'm a pretty loving person. And you guys all walk out unchanged and, un, and, you, have, and you don't meet with Jesus. It'd be a lot easier job for me. 
And it'd be a lot easier to walk for you. So why do we enter into the war that Paul calls it of devoting ourselves to the word of truth? Back to the beginning of 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse one. We do not give up. Why do we devote ourselves? Since we have this ministry and because we were shown this mercy. First, because or since we have this ministry. Every single person who enters into a relationship of Jesus becomes a minister of the gospel. In a sense, every Christian becomes a sent out one, a ship carrying precious cargo out into the world, not with the authority of the apostles, but as we walk and receive from them over the past 2,000 years, we enter into that same kind of ministry. Um, is it, there's one next passage, I think is it First Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians 5, just a few, few chapters later, a chapter later. What are we talking about, Paul? What do you mean we have this ministry? He writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything, all of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What ministry do we have, Paul? You have the ministry of reconciliation. Every Christian, all who are in Christ. What does it mean that I have the ministry of reconciliation? That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The ministry of reconciliation is that we carry the message of reconciliation. He continues, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. How does God appeal for people to be reconciled to him? Through his people, carrying the message that's been entrusted to them. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So why, do we, why are we so devoted? It's, it's my job title. This is what it means for me to be a Christian. There's no form of Christianity apart from me carrying the message of reconciliation. And the moment that I begin to scalpel away elements of what that looks like, I scalpel away the very ministry that God has given me. And so the terrifying reality of this is I am going to answer for God to what he's entrusted to me. You will too. Your, your reception of Jesus is not simply your personal experience of, of, of God and the reconciliation that you have with him. He's entrusted you to spread and share that with others. And we'll be held to an account for the way that we do or don't do that, whether we devote ourselves or we deceive or we distort. So the first reason why we do this is this, this is this is what you've been called to. There's no Christianity apart from this work, apart from this devotion. But the second reason why we devote ourselves to this, he says, if you can go back to the beginning of first, or 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, we do not give up. We devote ourselves to this, not only because we have this ministry, but because we were shown mercy. I, I don't know how to adequately put this, but there is a, this is the problem with when I think about sermon things like while I'm like getting ready and I don't have my, like the chance to write it down. The danger of with a twist of Christianity and we begin to scalpel away the pieces of Jesus and cut off the pieces of Jesus that don't fit within our, our model, is at a certain point, 
The very authority that you take up over Jesus to do that is the moment that the dynamic where you receive mercy and grace from him gets completely dropped on the floor. And what's so profound to me is the very same things that certain people will step into Jesus because they want to receive mercy for, because they see the destruction or the outbreak or the pain within a particular thing, a sin in their life. And they go, God, I want, I want God's forgiveness and life in, in the midst of this. You give them a few years, and in the absence of devotion, those become the very things that they start arguing that Jesus doesn't care about. And so in doing so, they completely write off the mercy and the work of God. And so the whole danger is like when you begin to... to turn Jesus into this block tower that you can take Jenga pieces and you just hope you don't hit one where the whole thing falls apart. It, 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 the whole thing falls apart. The, the, the framework of the mercy that we've received is built on the framework of, of sin that's based on the, the, the reconciliation that we've received is based on the framework of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man. So for us to fit our nationalism in with Jesus is to completely undercut the kingdom of God and the whole thing Jesus came about to bring. For us to begin to put in what we say about bodies is to undercut the whole story of what it means for us to be humans in the image of God. The moment we take the authority to do this, we undercut ourselves from the mercy and the grace that God has brought to us through this very message and, and ministry. And so the mercy aspect of why we go on in this is because I, this is where I have, this is the life that I have found is in Jesus. And, and as much as Jesus is alive, resurrected, and meeting with me through the Spirit today, the means through which I know him is through this thing. It's through this. And so if at some point I start going, well, we can get rid of this, what, why, what, by what basis are you judging what you get rid of and what you keep? If you make a basis for, for Jesus' commands for nonviolence to go away, why can't I say, no, it's all by works. You haven't received any mercy. You've got to do it. See, the framework, what separates all of these different groups, all the with a twist of Jesus, of which you've got political elements of that, you've got even other cults and, and, and stuff like that that take Jesus and they take their own cult belief and they do a with a twist of Jesus on it. What's the framework? What's the bedline for any of these people to go, no, I, I am standing within legitimate Christianity. Though all may claim Christianity, this is legitimate Christianity. It's the apostles' teaching. It's the New Testament. This is the framework of, of what's going on here. And so I'm belaboring the point. But the whole point that I'm trying to say is there is a mercy and a grace, that work of reconciliation that God has brought about. And part of my devotion to that work is not just because it's my job, but it's because it's where I've received mercy. The gospel of Jesus as given to me through the apostles' teaching, this tradition handed down over the generations is the very story in which I find myself receiving grace and mercy in the midst of my greatest failures and sin. And so I receive this whole story as the thing that I carry. I'm not gonna begin to start poking Holes in it. That doesn't mean that we don't ask questions. That doesn't mean that we don't have doubts and we work through it. But I receive this as the thing that's been entrusted to me. And, and I walk within that. John chapter 6, as we close. Jesus. Jesus has just given a hard word that has sent a lot of the crowds away. And they no longer want to follow Jesus. So Jesus, in the midst of everyone leaving him, because he's called them to a, a particularly difficult word, as they're leaving, Jesus turns and asks the disciples, you guys aren't going to go too, are you? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the basis of devotion. Is even in the midst of the, the hard words that you bring, Jesus, in the midst of, I don't understand them. Like, I don't understand offsides in soccer. That doesn't mean it's a bad rule. <laughs> there are things that take time for me to understand, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is wrong, and it doesn't mean that he needs my help to cut something away. The better thing is for me to, under, to learn, to sit with Jesus, to receive the mercy that he has, and for him to shape me more and more into the sort of person who knows how to obey all that he's commanded. But the, the main framework for that is, Jesus, you are the one that has the words of eternal life. Jesus, you are the one who is giving out mercy, and so I'm going to learn, as difficult as it may be, what it means to follow you in that. Let's pray.